to Learning Now Radio, bringing you the best news, views and interviews from the team that brings you Learning Now TV. This is Learning Now Radio. Hello, I'm Colin Steed and I'd like to welcome you to Learning Now Radio. Learning Now Radio is our bi-monthly podcast for all learning professionals. Learning Now Radio with Colin Steed and Lisa Minogue-White. And welcome to episode six of Learning Now Radio. Firstly, Lisa, Kim and I like to wish you a very happy new year and thank you once again for all your kind feedback that we've received so far. We've got a packed programme for you today. Lisa, who's in the conversation hot seat with you today? Well, Colin, in this episode, I speak to Paul Morgan, Head of Learning and Development at Telefonica O2. We discuss the challenges facing the learning profession today and the types of skills that he expects of his team to deliver outstanding learning to a complex, fast-paced organisation. But first, we hear from Kim George. Now, creativity at work is a really hot topic at the moment. So Kim recently attended a creative leadership workshop to find out some more. I recently attended a creative leadership workshop run by James Allen, MD of Creative Huddle, who I interviewed in November's episode of Learning Now TV. If you watched the interview or since viewed the recording, you'll remember that Creative Huddle has released research into creativity at work revealing its positive impact on engagement, motivation and productivity. Indeed, other studies have shown that companies embracing creativity outperform competitors on revenue growth, market share and talent acquisition, and the result is a happier and more engaged workforce. So how do we increase our creativity and encourage our workforces to be more creative? In fact, what is creativity? What indeed makes a creative person or and how do they perform? These are some of the questions posed to us during the Creative Leadership Workshop. In particular, we looked at how to be a creative leader and why that's so important. So when we were asked to consider who is a creative person, we came up with the following. Someone who is imaginative, questioning, ideas driven, someone who thinks beyond the ordinary, considers different perspectives and who relentlessly tries to express themselves. A sponge almost, absorbing fragments of everything and anything, creating potentially unique outputs. Do you agree? If you disagree, that's fine. Why not tweet what you think makes a creative person and tag it with hashtag creative huddle and hashtag LNTV. At their workshop, we also discussed what's important for creativity and what stops us from being creative. What was great about the workshop was that it brought together different people from designers and artists to HR and learning professionals too, but writers as well, people I wouldn't usually have these kind of conversations with. It was refreshing to take a day out to focus on something that I think isn't sometimes valued or given the time it deserves in the workplace. Interestingly, we all thought communication and confidence were particularly important for creativity. In fact, a couple of us agreed that we admire those skills in other people who we consider to be creative. They have a kind of verbal fluency or natural ability to express themselves. We also agreed that autonomy and flexibility are essential as creative people need to be trusted with responsibility and to use their time in a way that works for them. Another conclusion we drew was that creative people have the courage to take risks 
and use failure to their advantage. So what stops the rest of us from developing these traits or skills and being creative? It's probably not too difficult to guess that responsibilities and routine can hold us back, that too much admin or process following, rules even, can also restrict us. We also mentioned that boredom can suffocate inspiration, motivation and creativity, and even the weather or season affects some of us. So we could say, right, do away with all the rules, admin and processes and make more time for creativity. But unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. Creativity can't be forced. It's an attitude. It's an approach. As John Cleese said, creativity is not a talent. It's a way of operating. James explained to us that creativity is something we can learn by putting ourselves out there to learn new things, consider new ideas and approaches, and by changing our attitudes and removing blockages. At one point, he showed us an image of Mr. T from the A-team with his arms up. If you can imagine, he's flexing his muscles. And James said, creative people are like Mr. T. They're like T-shaped people. They have plenty of interests, connections, and they like learning. That's the horizontal part of the T-shape. And that feeds into the domain or expertise, which is the vertical part. So if we cultivate the horizontal part of our T's, if we learn, we can encourage and inspire ourselves to be more creative or think more creatively when we work. James also talked us through the fixed and growth mindsets, where creative people believe intelligence can be developed. They embrace challenges. They persist with obstacles. They view effort as the path to mastery. They learn from criticism and from the success of others. So basically, they don't give up. And we can all do this. Finally, we spent some time debating what makes a creative leader. That was the real crux of it. We decided that a creative leader is an inspiring, motivating and supportive person with a genuine passion and belief in you and your skills. They inspire you, they respect who you are, are flexible and empower you to be creative. They lead in a human way, which I thought was a really nice way of putting it. And they provide an environment for freedom and trust, which in turn creates confidence and makes things happen. James shared David Ogilvie's version of a creative leader, which I don't have time to go into now, but I would encourage you to look up. What I will leave you with are some conclusions from Creative Huddle around what makes a creative workshop. So we should give people control over their own work area. It sounds obvious, doesn't it? We should avoid large open plan offices. Instead, create different office spaces for different purposes. So, you know, a real comfortable area of color and, and couches for, for more kind of relaxing or informal work. And then quiet areas where people can really focus and concentrate as well. Another thing is that we need to allow more flexible working hours, something we've talked about a lot. Give people freedom over their start and finish times. Allow autonomy and encourage job variety. Why not encourage job shadowing, for example? And finally, encourage people to take breaks from technology. Allow them to spend their time in different ways and in different environments, away from their devices. They're all fairly obvious things, not just for creativity, but for a happier, more productive workforce. Knowing that could also inspire creativity, makes it even more appealing to make changes to the way we work. I ask the question, can we ourselves make these changes or do we really need buy-in from the top? 
James and the rest of the group believed support from leaders of a company will make these kind of changes easier, but there's no reason why people can't try to influence their managers and their teams and the immediate environments they work in. There's plenty of evidence out there to support making a workplace more creative. You can find Creative Huddle on Twitter, and James sent me a brilliant list of links and book recommendations, which I'm going to tweet from my account, which is Kim at Kim S. George. So please look out for that, and thanks for listening. Learning Now Radio. All the best news, reviews, and interviews. And now it's time to listen in to Lisa's conversation with Paul Morgan, the head of L&D at Telefonica. Lisa. So, Paul Morgan, thank you so much for speaking to us at Learning Now Radio. My pleasure. Um, Now, Paul, the reason why I've been really keen to get you on an episode of Learning Now Radio is you are a a man of an honest heart. You will absolutely say what you feel and how you feel about it and I think right now I can't think of a better time to interview you particularly because I think uh, in the last month or so there's been a real acceleration on this whole debate about the learning and development revolution. I've seen things suggesting that learning and development are sleepwalking into some sort of apocalyptic end Um, but a lot of those views to be honest have come from people outside the immediate profession, i.e. not actually working in organisations at the moment. And I just don't believe that that is the case. And I know that you've got some really strong views on that and a lot of in-house experience. So, Paul, what's your view on all of this? So, um, it's a rather dramatic view. Um, It's nearly as dramatic as when we said that e-learning was going to kill all classroom training. (laughs) So, my, my view is... The industry is somewhat confused and the industry is somewhat in overload consumption of information. So my view is that businesses are demanding more from their investments broadly and specifically are demanding even more clarity as to the value that departments such as learning and development as a cost support structure bring back to the business when they're having to make efficiencies you know, in whatever industry. So my my strong belief, my passion, is that we as an L&D industry are somewhat confused as to what our role is, and I think we need to get back to basics. So um, I'll just give you a few kind of headlines that I feel very strongly about, and we can we can discuss each one in turn. So my my first view is that dramatic change in L&D or is, is down to you know, what we're being demanded to do. Uh, but secondly, there seems to be a misunderstanding as to whether L&D should change and how it should change. So my view is, firstly, um, we collectively need to make one degree of change as, a, as an industry and as a, as a set of people to create a one degree of difference. And what I mean by that is we need to start thinking collectively rather than singularly in terms of I I am in O2 and I love what I do in O2 and I don't really care about what happens outside. So the, the view that I would have is if we continue to think like that, as I said to my team when I first joined, O2 is two things will happen. Either the investment we have in L&D will be killed 
because it's a singular line within a rather large spreadsheet, but it has a rather large number of heads and investment attached to it. Or secondly, it will be outsourced. So my first view is, you know, um, it is in it is in our control um, to to make a change and actually start making the difference. But we have to work together to do it. And it's and it's not it's not focus groups. It's not conferences. It's about how do L and D departments collaborate more, share more, and drive more change. So let's pause on that for a moment. Within O2, what sorts of changes of roles have you seen? Uh, what you know in the, in the last year or so? What sorts of things have you been encouraging your team to get more involved in that are demonstrating that kind of change in perception? So one one of the things that that we've done is, and if you if you look at a traditional L and D team. Um, and I, if I take mine at the start, um, you've got to be clear that the business understands what you're there for and who they contact. So one of the things we've done very early is make, make our structure very clear and very simple and actually work out who, 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 who do the people in the business go and talk to and actually what the expectations of those people are. So from a development point of view, we've trained and educated those people and made made some investments to bring people outside in, but also in terms of start to encourage those people to go and learn from others in the industry and actually broaden their experience. Because, you know, going to a, a focus group or going to um, a show will tell them the technologies and techniques out there but nothing will tell them how to do it apart from someone actually doing the job. So that's the first thing to really get get an understanding as to what is expected in business of L&D and actually how they can improve their roles, create clarity and start to create some value and, and some consistency of service as is required from every other department within any business. And what sort of role then and what sort of relationship do the L&D team at um, Telefonica O2 have with operational teams? What, so what does that dynamic look like on a day-to-day basis? So let, let me talk pre and post. So pre, um, just to give you an idea, people we had, 50% of those people had different job titles. And, you know, back to the basics of managing or setting expectations people would go to meetings and then three of my team would turn up because everyone was keen to facilitate that person's requirement so what we've now done is basically say we have a learning partner that basically is the business person on point to take a requirement from that business whether that be the director of that business whether it be from the management of that business or whether it be from a collective and also work with hr to basically define a need and work out what the business problem is because I'm a firm believer that L&D are here to solve business problems not to measure ROI or ROE they're here to find out in terms of what what needs to be solved how we can help and actually more importantly is it a need at all because when I took over um, we were finding that oh well just under 50% of the requirements were actually communication things that, that could be sent out from comms but because we were keen to produce stuff, we, we produced it as e-learning. So that's the that's the first that's the first element in answer to your question. Yeah, and I think that's a, a really interesting place to start because I think a number of years ago, uh, lots of organisations had uh, experimented with the partner model. Um, but dare I say it, and this is only my own view from in organisation prior to the role that I have now, that almost the business the business wasn't quite ready for it. So you know a lot of this debate at the moment about you know our learning development willing to change. Um, there is 
in some cases, quite a traditional view of what loan development bring to the party, i.e. they're the keepers of the catalogue. So changing that perception is, is, is no mean feat, but it sounds as if you've got the partner role very well understood. Yeah, you have to be business aligned, not L&D aligned. And this is where a lot of teams fail, is they're there to solve business problems and they're, they're not there to produce lots of stuff. There could be some stuff that they have to do, like compliance, but you know, where tell me where else in the business they're introverted and don't align to what the business want to achieve and how they partner. It's not an individual department that produces stuff. I mean, for me, you know, one of the fascinating elements that I've been reviewing over the last few months is if you go back to some basic models and some basic principles, you know, we have known for years that if you twenty percent of your customers or 20% of your resource or 20% of anything you do will, will create 80% of the results. One other thing that struck me over the last few months is why, oh why, have L&D for years spent 80% of their effort getting 20% of the results? Because we as an industry want to produce lots of stuff and we're not comfortable with curating content in the industry. So for me, that's just a very basic measure of actually what are we here to do and let's add some real value to get the 80 percent of results rather than the volume versus the little value well on that note what sort of projects have you seen then um since you've been in place uh, uh paul at telefonica 02 what kind of projects have delivered the most impact what sorts of things have you been doing that have you know really transformed a particular business need yeah, so, so it's an interesting point. So if I just explained a little bit about the process we go through. So what, one, of the, one of the fundamentals I, I feel of business is you need to have clarity over roles, responsibilities, and process to drive efficiency. So we underpinned our business fairly early on to make sure that we had a consistent way of working because we didn't. And also we centralized certain resources to get efficiency. So if we use that as a baseline and we work from there is in terms of there was great stuff going on within Telefonica, but in terms of not in every area. So one of the things we've done is make it clear in terms of how do we have the conversation with the business and how do we start the conversation with I'm here to solve your business problem. How would you want me to help? It could be. In call centers, we'd like to reduce call time on a particular product by 5%. It could be we want to increase the ability of our account directors to sell to CXOs. So that's a win rate. It could be we want to create higher bids. So where the L&D industry is slightly stuck is I hear a lot of cost per head. I hear a lot of ROI and ROE. But actually, you're just there as any other service industry or support function to drive business value. So you've got to turn your your results into what the business wants to do and nothing and nothing else and stop inventing um, new ways of measuring that are inputs to the overall result about activity. But they're helping along with a whole load of other things to drive to drive the overall business performance. So, you know, so take launch of. Uh, we launched a number of products, three, six, Office 365. Um, we're now the number one um, reseller of that product as part of a, a small business offering, business essentials. You know, there, there are lots of areas that are either externally facing or it could be internal. So we've run, we've run a project 
where we've helped the organization transfer their core management system. And obviously that was to drive efficiency. Has that met the KPIs that were originally set down by the project? Yes. So we use those as, are we a contributing factor to the success rather than trying to delineate and view a statistic that many people have had um, influence over, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And and what that kind of leads me on to think about then is somebody in your sort of role then, Paul, you're going to be supported in a number of different ways. And I wanted to um, focus on two different inputs, as it were, I suppose, in, in you achieving what you need to achieve as head of learning. The first one is, what do you then look for in your people? What does an effective learning partner look like? Well, let's talk broadly in terms of what does a good L&D person look like? Perfect. And what I look for. So I look for someone that is passionate about the subject that they want to go into because I'm a firm believer that you've got to enjoy the job you do and you've got to enjoy every day. Now, we all have bad days, but in, in the round, you've got to be passionate because you've got to have something to help you get out of bed in the morning. Um, and so for me, it's you're passionate about the subject. You want to be in this industry for the right reasons. You want to go go with the flow in terms of we are moving away from certainty to ambiguity. And you have the ability to roll your sleeves up and actually get involved as a team because you know we have roles in particular areas but you need flexibility to be able to get involved in certain things depending on what is launching it at a particular time and then last but not least you've got to be able to have some fun you know fun is an important element of work if you if you find it hard to have fun i think it makes it harder because it makes it harder to deal with the day to day so that those are the key elements you know clearly aligning you know, for me, aligning a person to a business has to be a, a not a perfect match, but it has to be a match. And what I mean by that is you can't put someone in a business role in L&D if they don't understand what SMB means or they don't understand, you know, about mid-market or they don't understand some of the language. Because as we know, you know, if you meet people and you don't have a similar interest or can't relate to that person, then it's very hard to create a, a friendship or even a acquaintance, let alone business partnership. So I always look for industry um, understanding, mm-hmm. not necessary experience, and actually whether they're passionate, so they can clearly articulate or or ask the right questions as to what is is a true meaning um, for a, for a particular business requirement. Okay, and the second half of this, then Paul, and brace yourself for this one, is then. There are plenty of suppliers and consultants out there that will tell you, as head of learning, Paul, what you need. What do you need? <laughs> well, it's a very, it's a very interesting question. So, I'll brace yourself for the answer. Perfect. Um, I don't need a lot of what people are trying to sell me. That's that's for sure. I need expertise in areas of market or particular point solutions. Um, I'm astonished how much email I get about trying to sell me stuff that I don't need because they're not even interested in asking me what I need, but always telling me that I actually need it. So I'll just give you an example. So we work with a number of suppliers that, that enable us to create a solution. So, you know, as as we all know, you know, e-learning 
hasn't taken over the world, nor has classroom died, nor has things like online or webcasts, etc. So depending on what the solution is, will be t- depend what the expertise is. So one thing we're trying to do as an organization is increase our use of niche players, mm-hmm. not broad players. So it could be in the technology space. It could be in the video space around cur- curating content. It could be in a particular area. So, for example, I'll just give you one example. We, we work with a company called Empirical, who are an amazing company that do online video and interactive learning for high-end networking. So we have a particular need that it's difficult to send, you know, engineers and network people out for long days, you know, for, for weeks at a time. But actually, they actually don't want that either. They want a point solution to help them in, in need and on the job. So it's it's elements like that that are that are suitable for the solution that we need, not big bang broad programs. We use Mind Gym occasionally for some of their you know, they're great um, content that helps at point in need and bite size. We use a number of other companies. So, you know, we don't know what we don't know and uh, until it comes. And I think, you know, people, suppliers need to start positioning themselves as what they're good at, not not what they think they're good at. So actually, where do they have expertise? Is it marketing or is it a particular area? Because those are the people that we need because, you know, we have a sizable healthy L&D team of 40 people. We have an audience of seven and a half thousand and we have to we have to look after all of them in every way. So for me, coming back to the 80, 20, 20, 80 is we'll only create content where it's going to add real value. What we want to do is curate content from suppliers that is, you know, underpinning and 80 percent what we want. So take Linda as an example. We use Linda an awful lot to underpin a huge amount of our programs because it's not only good for professional, it's actually a great personal development tool. So it's, it's you know, one size does not fit all anymore and sole contracts don't work either because the world is a much more complicated place. Well, and of course, it's your learning professionals that are adding the context and all the things that are going to make any of those things effective anyway because each in isolation aren't going to deliver that transformation and business performance that you need. So I suppose it's really, they're they're the catalysts, aren't they? Yes, and you you just need suppliers that know what they're good at and are happy to walk away and go, that's not my area of expertise. So as an example, it could be someone that's doing some great work around leadership or marketing, how how to develop great marketing solutions or great presentations. They may say "Our, our expertise is in delivering empowering workshops. But actually, what you don't find a lot of people that go, I do empowering workshops and online is not our bag because we don't have those skill sets. Yeah. So I think I think people, suppliers would help themselves a lot more if they if they were very specific about their area of expertise, because that would create an area of interest to to understand more rather than be told that they're good at everything, because that's what everyone says. So what do you think 2016 is going to look like then, Paul? 2016 is an exciting time. Um because you know we've created the baseline the basics the business processes the rhythm of the business to drive efficiency we've got some good robust models in place to determine what needs are Um, we've got a great set of people from you know heads of department to learning partners to learning consultants we've got good training and education in our own department because that's what you need more than anything so it's really about evolving and driving 
you know, continuing to drive success because I'm a firm believer that success breeds success. So 2016 is really about trying, well, one, improving what we've got and getting greater at it. But secondly, driving the learning culture within our business. So we start to give people the ability through great and amazing digital experiences to take control of their own development. Because in any L&D organization, it is still a very push mentality. And we need to start you know, being different and being innovative as to how do we pull our audience in to really understand the value of, of their own development from a personal point of view and a professional point of view. And we've done a huge amount of work on that. We've had some good successes. Are we there net? No. Um, but it's really about driving that driving that healthy culture of both both push and pull to really get the best out of our people and you know f- for them to be amazing. And what do you want the wider learning and development community to be doing in 2016? That's a very interesting question. I'll make an observation rather than what I want them to do. Great. A few things on on my mind, um, and I've been asked this question a few times recently, is. I think as an industry, we need to ignore all the messages that are out there about models until we've got the basics in place to understand how do we align to the business? What roles do we need? How do we use process to make us more efficient and consistent and doing things little and often and drive the value of L&D? Because what I see a lot of is, for example, let's just take neuroscience. I don't think anyone should look at neuroscience until they are clear in terms of what service they offer and actually whether they're valued as an L&D team because it's just a distraction. So that's my first view. Well, it becomes the next initiative, doesn't it, which is an absolute killer. Oh, here at L&D coming along with their next initiative. <laughs> yes, and the other element for me is really you know, driving an element of networking in the industry. So I... I'm a firm believer that networking, when I was at Microsoft, was told that networking will make you stronger. Um, it doesn't make you weaker because you don't know the answers to everything. You're only human. However, you know, as everyone said, you know, the collective is greater than the sum of the, the, the parts. But, you know, there are some ingredients that we all need. You know, I use a principle that is, is well versed in KISS. I think we really do need to be, we do need to keep it simple, um, keep it simple, stupid. So anyone within the business can understand and actually see the value of why L&D should be at the table. Not that, you know, we should start producing stuff. Curation is a massive element we need to be more comfortable with. And um, no longer can we do our performance review with a list of stuff that we've done. It's more about what value have I added to the business. And then, you know, f- finally, networking is is the only way forward we have an enormous amount of people in this industry that are in this industry for a reason and want to be, but we're petrified of networking. Um, don't ask me why. Um, I, I was always learned to understand that some people say knowledge is power. I say knowledge is very dangerous. Is that if it's used collectively, it's very, it's very um, strong and it can, it can make you stronger. So I would encourage a lot of people just to just to get out of their buildings and start understanding what other people are doing because there is an appetite to do it, but someone's got to start the movement and someone's got to start making that one degree of change or one degree of difference to really drive value in this industry. Because if we don't, as I said at the start, we, we are heading for a you know cataclysmic event 
where we will not be valued and we are not valued individually, we are valued in the round and we really need to drive our value forward, but we need to do it consistently together. Well, I think ending on a little bit of drama like that is never a bad thing, Paul. <laughs> so um, thank you again so much for spending the time to speak to us today at Learning Now Radio. My pleasure. Learning Now Radio. All the best news, reviews and interviews. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it and found the items useful for your work. Remember, if you have some suggestions of people you'd like us to interview, then please contact me at colin at learningnow.tv. Alternatively, if you fancy being interviewed by Lisa, then please contact me at the same address. In the next episode of Learning Now Radio, we'll be speaking to John Delano of Saltbox and author of the new book, The Learning Leader's Playbook. It's really an essential listen because there are some fantastic hints and tips drawn from his new book that will really help you get to the heart of the learning needs of your organisation and align it to real business value. So I thoroughly recommend coming back and joining us next time. So please remember to subscribe to the channel on iTunes and we look forward to you joining us in two weeks' time.